So Armand, you are the kind of guy that for a lot of people, myself included, this person that's really consistent. I know you were a former wrestler. In order to wrestle at your level, you've got to practice and put the work in every day. You can't like cram last minute. And as someone who's a really good prospector, I've noticed that you're consistently making a couple hundred dollars a week, consistently sending emails, regardless of if it's the end of the month or not. And I guess my first question for you is, have you always been that kind of a guy? <laughs> no, no, very, very far from it. Um, and, and it's tough because everyone says like, oh, like I'm not naturally talented, but but folks, I, I'm, I'm really not naturally talented. I was, I mean, growing up, I was a, a rather awkward kid. I'm still, I consider myself to be super, super introverted. It takes a lot of emotional energy for me to turn it on for these types of things. And also in just general other things in terms of discipline, it, I, I sort of had to force myself to create structures that allowed me to do those things. When I started my wrestling career, I was 0 and 10 up front. And a lot of it was just because I, I didn't understand how to manage my own life, how to manage my practice, practice schedule, how to manage my diet and all those things. Things that came naturally to other folks were completely foreign to me. And so what I had to learn how to do is I had to learn how I learn and learn how to enforce false or fake boundaries for myself that force me to do the things that I don't like to do. And then if you keep it for one month, two months, three months and beyond, I find that then it becomes a habit and I can continue continue to layer on good habit after good habit. And it's taken me like 10 years to build some of these habits over time. But no, it was never this way from the beginning. So you're, you were intentionally sort of rigging yourself to do things that you didn't want to do inherently. What was your process for that? Like, let's just talk about wrestling for a second. I would imagine because my my nephew wrestles and the training regimen that they go through every day, it's, it's, it's grueling. And there are days when he just does not, as you probably experienced, doesn't want to do it. Um, I yeah. have this as well when I run, like there's just some days where I don't want to do it. And I notice if a couple hours goes by in the morning, I don't run that day. So what have you kind of done and what have you learned about building these habits? Yeah, one thing that I always try to do is what I cannot control is if someone's going to be a jerk to me that day. I can't control if somebody's going to, uh, if my day is going to get jostled or schedules are going to be messed up during sales or during school if I screw up a test. I can sort of control that stuff. But what I can control is every other piece of structure that happens outside of the uncontrollable, uncontrollables. And what I can control is those first two hours of the day where I know that I'm the man I'm in control and I can start the day on my terms so that even if I get hit in the face two hours into the day, I've done some things that put me in a state of control so I feel comfortable and I feel like I'm not getting flat footed. And that's why I started waking up on the first snooze, making sure I don't push the snooze button a million times, eating the frog in the morning, getting my workouts done first thing in the morning, even when I don't want to, because I know it's gonna make me feel better. When you get in the habit of doing that for one month, two months, now over five years, for me, then you get to this point where you're, you sort of get in this like state of comfort in your morning routine where you know like those first two hours of the day are me time that are gonna set me up mentally to take on anything that comes throughout the rest of the day. And Josh, it's never gonna be perfect. I still have terrible days like anyone else, but I find by having a couple of anchors within the day that I know I can control and always have a great time and feel good about at the end of the day, I find that those anchors are critical for me being successful in any other part of my life. 
Yeah, I had a similar approach. I used to be about 75 pounds heavier than I am now. And a good friend of mine hired a personal trainer for me. I was never like a gym person. And it was interesting. His approach was like, hey, I don't want to actually have you go to the gym and work out. I just want you to get dressed and go to the gym and then come home like for four days. I'm not, when, I, when I'm there, when I just work out, he's like, no, just go and, and come back. And, you know, BJ Fogg, who's a famous, you know, behavioral economic guy out of like, think of Stanford, talks about this idea of like tiny habits. You know, you want to teach someone to floss their teeth and they've never flossed a teeth before. You start with a tooth. Is that kind of what you did as well? Like, did you make things easier for yourself to be able to develop some of these habits? And we're going to get into cold calling in a second, but I just want to see like how you're wired here. Yeah, the that's the thing is the first time you do anything, it's brutal. The first time you floss a tooth or the first time you go on a run, the first time you wake up in the morning, I remember that. A lot of people, I would see, they would read these books. They would read like The Miracle Morning is a great book. And they would see these seven things you have to do in the morning. Be like, <laughs> all right, you got to do these seven things in the morning. And so they would do the seven things on the first day, the seven things on the second day, the five things on the third day, the one thing on the fourth day, and then the zero things for the rest of their lives. And for me, it was actually the exact opposite. What most people do is they actually bite off more than they can chew. And they can think, they think that like, you know, they see the pictures of the rock being all charismatic, working out every day, you know, being just like the perfect human being of life. Very few people are like that, zero to 60 in one second. And so what I did is I took one thing that I knew I could control every single day, one thing. And when I was in sales, that one thing was I knew if I could knock out my first dial blitz in the first hour of my day and be done with it, then I would hit my dial commit. I might not be the best on the phones, I might not be the number one seller, but if I could do that in the first hour of my day, I knew I could just get that one thing done, and then I started hitting that for one week, two weeks, five weeks, three months, an entire year, and never missed a dial commit again. And then throughout the year, I started to layer on an additional one thing at a time. Versus, let me get good at cold calling, let me get good at cold emailing, let me do LinkedIn, let me do holograms, whatever the next thing is, especially nowadays where it's so easy to get distracted thanks to people like me who are writing stuff on LinkedIn all the time, <laughs> making it easy for people to consume information and actually not do anything with it. So it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to do that, like exactly. to be able to have such discipline. Did you prep that the night before? Like it's one of the things that my coach taught me to do is, hey, Josh, you know, lay out your running clothes in the morning, as silly as this sounded, and like put your sneakers there, your socks, your outfit to make it easier, you know, so you don't have to think about it. Did you get your list done in advance of the day before? Yeah, so the every when I was selling insurance, my first time in sales wasn't even in touching the world of SaaS, it was selling insurance. And at the end of the day, they had this thing called post and plan. And what it was is it was super old school insurance sales. You would basically post up your numbers, which means you would be like literally writing down the number of dials you did. Everyone had like a T chart of like number of dials, number of connects, et cetera. And so you would write that down on a board and then you would plan for the next day. And you, so you would pull here are the people that I'm gonna call, here are the, the leads that I need to follow up with, here are the deals that I need to have calls with, what have you. So that the moment you start the day, you're sprinting, right? The worst thing, is starting your day, getting in, and just seeing like the massive inbox, seeing the calendar full with meetings, seeing the dial tax over here, seeing the Slack message from your manager and be like, I have no idea what I'm gonna do today. And most people, they, they spend an hour actually warming up to start the day versus what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring that process to the end of the previous day 
where I'm already in a little bit of a reflection mode and I have some clarity and I can step back, not being under the gun of like, oh shoot, my first meeting is in one hour. It's awesome. I mean, chefs do this really well. I don't know if you've ever heard of this term called mise en place. Yeah. But it's a French culinary term that describes, you know, everything in place. So you ever watch a master chef cook, go to any kind of sushi bar in particular, and you'll see very little movement. And the restaurant will be packed. Like I go to Houston's up the street, the restaurant's packed, there's a guy on the grill. And it's like calm, like I have five people over and it's a frenetic mess on my grill. But because everything's prepped in advance, everything in its place, there's very little movement. It sounds like you have a similar philosophy that you're, you're prepping the night before to get ready for the day. And then when the day comes, while everyone's in reactive mode, you're in proactive mode. That's exactly right. Knowing that, so today I, I run the sales team over at PAVE, right? But I'm also carrying a book of business at PAVE. And so I have sales calls, I have my own outbound prospecting, but then I'm also managing four or five other reps on my team as I transition full-time into leadership. Plus we don't have like a huge marketing motion. And so I have the marketing team that I have to run. Plus I run my own podcast. I run 30 MPC and I also invest in real estate with Nick. And if I have all of those things buzzing in my head at any given point in time, I am totally screwed. And so what I try to do is I try to take a step back at the end of the day and I will literally block my calendar out down to like the microactivity to the point where it's like you're cold calling here, you're researching here, you know you're gonna have four meetings, four hours of back-to-back -back meetings here and so you're gonna clear your inbox here so that when I'm in my day, I can constantly sprint. I never have to worry about what I need to be doing right now because I bucketed all of that planning the day before and literally my days are a nine to five or eight to eight, whatever the kind of day it is. They are a full sprint from beginning to end. Not to say I'm burning myself out, but I'm not forcing myself to cognitively context switch every single time the next hour ticks on. Do you see this as a big problem? with sales organizations. Now that you're leading a team, you've been an individual contributor, this idea of people not managing their time properly? Oh, all, all the time. And so the most common example is, I was an AE at Carta, and Carta's a pretty successful company, and like a lot of people here, when you, you, know, you sold at Carta, it's like, whoa, like that must be a killer sales team. And they were great, don't get me wrong. However, um, what I found is that I, I hit $200 a week, every single week, and like always hit my prospecting targets, and was managing over 70 opportunities at any given point in time, right? And that's not to like flex or brag or anything like that. But what I found is that like what would happen is when it got to the end of the month, all of the activity in the team would screech to a halt. You'd actually see like pipeline gen take a substantial dip in the last two weeks of the month. And the reason for that is people get swung by whatever's right in front of their face at any given point in time. And for me, my whole philosophy was if I've done my job correctly in sales, one, Josh, I know you're a big fan of this, I have sought out the no's early on in my process so I don't have to go and chase every single lead down. And all I've, all I've pared down my pipeline to is the people who I know are serious and I just need to hold them to their word at that point. And if the last week of the month is just me holding people to their word, then oftentimes, Josh, it's honestly like one of the less stressful times of the month versus at the beginning of the month where I have no idea where I'm at and I need to put together a forecast. And that's the mindset shift. Everyone thinks that you need to stare and breathe over your ops 10 times more than the next person. And looking at your pipeline is the fastest way to make sure that your pipeline gets smaller. When in reality, I'm just managing my pipeline defensively to say like, I'm just holding these people to their word and I'm being offensive on the prospecting side. Do you think it's because people don't know how to have 
real conversations or not maybe the real is not the right word honest conversations with prospects to know where these opportunities are so they they hang on to all of them because it makes them feel good and i've been guilty of this as well like i don't want to reach out to them because i i still see it there and it gives me a little comfort that it's in the pipeline it's there um what what do you think the root cause of that is what's tough is we're we're conditioned to when you hear about a sales rep or when you watch the sales movies or all of these things you hear about everything's about getting to yes. Everything's about never taking no for an answer. And so you think when you lose a deal that it's a reflection on you. The other day I had a, a really, really killer recent tech IPO that everyone would know. And I took a first discovery call with him and it wasn't going anywhere. And I had my SDR on the call and the SDR had set the meeting for me. And they were actually really, really bummed out that it didn't go anywhere. And I was actually pretty okay with it. And I was, well, I was, don't get me wrong, I was bummed that it didn't turn into an opportunity, but I was at least glad that the person was upfront with me and said, hey, this is what we're looking for. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. And I knew that's not a problem we were gonna solve for them. And so I said like, hey, like here are a couple other resources you can have to solve that problem. When you start to have some of these other problems, you can work with us down the road. And now I never have to have that eat up mind share in my head anymore. But everyone thinks that every single swing needs to be a hit. But all that does is it forces you to keep swinging on things that would never be a hit in the first place. And that's what people don't realize is that's a delayed gratification that comes with saying no. And there's no immediate reward for saying no. And so it's hard to think that you can just turn away deals that aren't going to go anywhere. So do you think this kind of originates from this being, you know, this attachment to the outcome and you feel less than if the opportunity doesn't turn into anything, you feel like a little bit of a failure because you think and assume that everybody you talk to must want what I'm selling. Yeah, I mean, everyone is like, I mean, you take it super, super personally when you close loss and off. But I find that if you're doing a really, really good job in selling, you know the ops that are gonna be closed loss before they actually have to be closed loss. Like I know from the first call, the second call, as my pipeline gets later and later and later in the cycle, I know which ones are gonna close, right? But a lot of times people are finding out when their deal is in stage five in Salesforce and they're shocked when it doesn't close. And to me, those are the ones where it's like, hey, you need to build it into your process to evoke the nose, to evoke all of the problems so you know exactly where you're at. So when you do actually need to stare at your pipeline, you stare at the ones that are serious and they're actually going to buy instead of trying to stare at every single one and then setting yourself up for disappointment at the end when you just get a bunch of no's that you were already expecting in the first place. For someone that doesn't have your experience, how do you know it's not going to close? And when I say not close, I always like to say now, because just because a door is closed doesn't mean it's locked forever. Anyone who's studied you know, jobs to be done theory knows that sometimes things take a little bit longer to progress because they're able to get by with what they have and the struggle isn't big enough yet. There's no cost of inaction really. And so, but maybe there is in three or four months or five months and things change. So how do you know not to spend your time on it now? Maybe it goes into some kind of nurture track. Are there certain questions that you ask? Is it more of a gut feel? Are you listening to energy? Uh, like how they're saying things? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So there's implicit and then explicit triggers. So things that are explicit are things that a prospect will willingly call out to you. They'll say, I'm not interested in this. This isn't a big enough problem. And if it were that easy, then we would have much better insight into our pipeline. And that's the problem, is they're usually not explicit triggers. And the reason for that is because 
you're so nice, you put your smiley face on, you put your sales face on, you make them seem we really wanna work with, we, with you, we really wanna work with you. You put in all this effort in your sales cycle and they don't wanna give you the no. And that's why they're ghosting you. You're not creating an environment where it's comfortable for people to say no to you. And Josh, I know you talk about this a lot, is I'm just creating an environment where they feel comfortable sharing the truth, right? And so my job is to take as many of those implicit hints that I see in a cycle and move them to explicit actions from the customer. And so let's take an example here, right? Uh, let's say I have a timing-based sale. Let's say I'm selling a FinTech product and I help people manage their audit process so they don't have to go through the pain of the IRS digging through all of their records. I don't actually sell that, but it's just an example, right? And I know that their audit doesn't come for three quarters down the road. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start asking them, hey, when's your next audit period? I'm gonna start asking them all of the problems that are gonna happen between now and that next audit period because I know this is a three quarter down the road close. And if there aren't enough problems, I'm gonna be like, well, Josh, I mean, honestly, it sounds like you got it really handled today, right? If I were to guess, like here are some things that could happen over the next three quarters, but I mean, I guess, wh why are you talking to me today when you just got through your last audit period? And then they'll start to come forward or they'll say, this is an exploratory conversation. And instead of just fighting for the next steps constantly at that point, I'm gonna say like, that's awesome. Why don't, let me send you some stuff so you, you can noodle over it, run it by the team, but why don't we reconnect a little bit later down the road where you know, you're a little bit closer to it? Have I given you everything you need to at least make a smart decision down the road so you feel comfortable with where your head's at with PAVE? And they'll say like, yeah. And they're almost pleasantly surprised that a salesperson wasn't breathing down their neck and pushing for the meeting next week, right? I love that. I, I you know, I, I refer to this as we're so trained on talking people into things. And my approach is I'd like to talk people out of things. And if people can't defend it, and there's not energy in terms of what terrible, no good, very bad thing happens if they don't do anything right now, it's probably not gonna close. I had a similar story happen uh, three weeks ago. I was talking to a, a pretty big opportunity. Um, and the people that I were speaking to, like, hey, we got like five of us that were crushing it, but the rest of the team's not doing well. We wanna bring in a trainer. We're looking at you, we're looking at this person, we're looking at that person. I'm like, hey, you guys are crushing it. Like, what's stopping you from like, training some of those reps, like teaching them what you're doing. Like, why would your manager want to bring in someone like me, former kindergarten teacher who knows nothing about your business and certainly doesn't know who you're selling to more than you do? And they're like, well, he, he probably probably wouldn't want to do that. I'm like, well, maybe you guys should like try to train up. And if you need some help, like how to codify your material or how to teach it, I'm more than happy to you know consult and just save a ton of time because that's going to come up. It's almost like you're calling out the negative thing in the room, the elephant. And just because you don't call it out doesn't mean it's not there. But I think you know, why do you think people don't want to do that? Is it because there's, because everything is, they're sort of comped on the clothes, right? So everything has to turn into something. Yeah. Well, the thing is that we have this perception that we are the thing that drives people forward in a sales process. We are not. More often than not, we are the thing that gets in the way of driving a sales <laughs> process forward. We, like, so many times you see it where like, like you can tell the customers like super uncomfortable and they're like, yeah, just send me an email and we can coordinate next steps, which is code word for, I, I, I don't really feel comfortable jumping on a call with you again because you're trying to sell me so hard. And the best sales calls do not even feel like you're selling. It just feels like you're trying to get the person to justify why the heck they're gonna buy. It's almost like you're trying to get them to say like, like really explain to you like, is it really worth doing this thing for you, right? This also happens really frequently in 
negotiation where people feel like when a competitor comes up and Josh, you hear a competitor, a competing sales trainer, and you let you see like here, well, this trainer doesn't do that. This trainer doesn't do that, right? And that's what most people do when they hear a competitor. When in reality, most of the time, if you're at like a forward thinking tech company, you're not the cheapest solution in the market. I tend to be sometimes 2X the nearest competitor. And when somebody says like, hey, there's another competitor down the block who's half your price, I'm just gonna try to push them away and say like, hey, if they're half the price and they do all the same things, like, I guess, why, why are we here? You know, not to, not to call you out on it, but what, what are we doing in this conversation if we're 2X the price and the same amount of value? Like maybe I screwed something up here. Like where did I go wrong? And then you'll start to get people to come forward and then you'll get to the actual answer. So great. I have a similar thing that happened to me. Uh, this was like six, six or seven months ago, a similar situation. They were like, hey, Josh, we're looking at you. We're looking at John Burroughs. We're looking at this person. We're looking at that person. And we want to know, like, what, why should we choose you? Um, and you're right. The, the inclination is mostly to talk to you, talk to people about why you're different, why you're better. But I, I think I said something like this was a while ago. I said, you know, I, I'm not sure, like, what would inspire you to want to bring on a former kindergarten teacher? Like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Like, John Burroughs, he's been working for Salesforce for so many years. Like, what you should probably, like, what's, what, why, what's going on here? Like, that was kind of how I said it. But then what you hear is they give you your value proposition. They start to tell you why they're looking at you, and you don't have to guess. And then you can kind of suss out if that's something important to them or not. Or, you know, but I think it's just about what you're getting at here, Armand, is just like having an honest conversation with people and being okay if it doesn't go anywhere being okay if it does, but not having an assumption and an expectation that everyone you talk to needs to go forward. This idea of kind of leaning back. And I guess the confidence, and correct me if I'm wrong for you, comes from the fact that you're really good at having lots of conversations and you're not focused on having a conversation. And this kind of gets back to your prospecting skills. Is, is, am I right there or like some, sometimes people say, well, it's easy for you, Josh, you have all these opportunities. I'm like, well, not really easy. But yeah, it's, it's definitely easier when I have a lot of opportunities. Yeah, it's the easiest, the most, the easiest way to build confidence in your sales cycle is to know you have other things to fall back on so you don't have to chase every single opportunity. I have in my entire history as a sales career, whenever I've been the top rep, I have always been number one in pipeline generation and I've always been close to last place in closing ratio. And the reason for that is not because I don't know how to close, it's because closing ratio is usually calculated as close one divided by close loss. And the moment I found, find out that something is a waste of my time, I close lost it. I get it out of my way. And so I am constantly deleting my pipeline. I'm constantly weed whacking my pipeline versus I see some people who have like open ops for, you know, 90 days, 180 days, 240 days, 365 days. Don't worry, they'll buy sometime in the next millennia. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, guys, like how, you're telling me that you look at these every single week in your pipe review, get on with it. And that's the problem is my focus is to delete everything that is not real from my pipeline and then continue to add as much volume as I can. And then again, delete everything that's not real. And that is my strategy as a rep. And then my sales process is only focused on figuring out who's serious, where are the real opportunities? And then making sure that those people really, really understand the problems that they're trying to solve with a solution like PAVE or whatever, the podcast, if it was a sponsor, what have you. Because there's a, there's a weight to that, right? Like there's a weight to that big fat pipeline of things that you're staring at every week 
because it takes you away from doing other things. Like it's on your mind. How could it not be, right? Everyone thinks you need to have a big, big fat pipeline. Everyone gets really excited when they see that. I remember there would be these like two or three reps. Uh, keep this one in mind. My top two or three reps never had the biggest pipeline at Carta. Usually the folks who had the most pipeline at Carta were oftentimes middle or lower performers. And the reason for that is because you would look into the pipeline and it was all this stuff that was just bloat and junk. And you could tell people didn't know where to spend their time, but they were clinging onto these legacy opportunities that weren't important anymore. There's this conventional knowledge that like, oh, this pipeline machine, big, big pipeline closer over here. When in reality, the best reps out there, they have lean, lean, lean pipelines. I love that. That is a great transition into the second part of this podcast, which begs the question that a lot of people are having, which is like, how do I now get really good at this velocity at the top of having lots of conversations so that I can be a little more choosy and selective and not have to cling on and hang on too tightly to the ones that I have because there's only a finite number of ones that I have. So what I want to do, I thought would be interesting, Armand, is if we can kind of go through your process a little bit. Um, we could talk a little bit about Carta. Maybe that's a good example, but you, you've kind of got a background in there. From what I understand, you had a background in that ICP, right? Like you, you, you sold into that before or you had experience with those audiences or was that a new audience for you at Carta? Yeah, so I sold insurance way back in the day and then I actually left the space of sales for a short period of time because I was a founder as well and my startup burned down and I didn't know why in the world my startup burned down. I couldn't give you a straight answer. And so instead of going right back into sales, I went into the world of corporate strategy and uh, venture capital, really more of like a finance type of sale uh, or in like a finance type of job. And then Carta was a fintech sale. And so I could talk the talk with a lot of these CFOs and say like, I've been in your shoes. I've seen that world before. And so, yes, I did have some industry expertise. Okay, so this might be a tough question or maybe it's not, but a lot of people don't have that, right? So if you're you know, an outreach person, you're an SDR selling to salespeople, you've been in the role, you are an SDR, you're actually using the product, you know what it's like. So many people listening to this are tasked with selling to CFOs, but they have not had your background. They don't know the person that, real, that well. So is the first step of your process to get to know a little bit about the struggle this person might be having with their job? With Carta, yeah. did you kind of know that or did you have to kind of do a little research? How'd you get to know the person you're reaching out to a little bit better? So let's, let's be abundantly clear on this. There are three types of trainings that I typically see sales teams focus on. There are industry trainings, which is what's going on in the world of my buyer. There are product trainings, which is how does my product work? What are the things that it does? And then there are sales trainings. Mechanically, how do I open up a cold call? The least important of those three is product training. The most overlooked one is what you know about your buyer. And so even though I had some loose experience in the venture space, my experience was 90% corporate strategy in a manufacturing company, which has nothing to do with venture back tech. I had a very, very small exposure to the venture space. It wasn't like I was talking to Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia Capital every day or these top tier VC firms. That was not it at all. I was like pseudo working with like the corporate venture arm of a manufacturing company that was one of the older com companies in Silicon Valley. And in order to learn that space, before I came to Carta, I had like the tip of the iceberg with venture, but if you look at my bookshelf back there, you got your favorite, never split the differences back there on my ranked books. <laughs> but then you also have 
uh, three books on venture capital, uh, one called Venture Deals, which basically just rips through an entire venture term sheet page by page. And then I listened to 20 Minute BC, the Full Ratchet podcast, every venture podcast I could find before I came to Carta, I embedded myself in the space. And so there are certain things that you don't find in the textbook or you don't find in the company trainings where someone says like, yeah, we're about to close our term sheet. And I know that this is the actual timeline to get that done. And I can say like, oh yeah, you got about like 45 days left on that thing then, right? Your lawyers are going through this process, this process and that process. And they're like, whoa, you're not just a sales rep. You need to understand the world that people live in first and every single thing that sucks about that world before you even start thinking about the product you're selling. And if you just sold that, you would win. So you and I are so aligned on this. Why do you think this is? Because I see this as well. It is often overlooked. The only training people typically have about the audience is maybe they get a case study that is written by marketing and isn't really that close to what sucks about their job. Um, you have taken a different approach. Uh, Mark Cuban calls this the knowledge advantage, right? It doesn't take much for you to know, probably more than the people that you're selling to, because probably they're not even up to speed on their industry. They're, they're stagnant, maybe. So by you just reading a little bit and listening to some, some podcasts, you can come across as having this huge knowledge advantage over every rep. But I want to ask you a different question. Why do you think this is so rampant? Um, people not knowing the audience or they know it at a very surface level. So they sound like, well, they're just trying to optimize their supply chain. The part of the problem is every form of advertising you see is we have these three Gillette blades. We have this bendy thing that makes sure you can catch all the hairs on your neck. We have this thing. We have that thing. The NASCAR logo slide has been popularized in the world of sales, which is the one that I hate, the one where it's all the pictures of your customers' logos. It's all about the, the glory of the pitch, the wolf of Wall Street. You get in and you do all the talking, when in reality, the best sellers have nothing to do with that nonsense at all. It's all of these like fake things where people think, think it's about selling value and selling the vision, when in reality, it's selling the crappiness of the world that people fall into today. But it's all of these bad habits that have been trained, trained to us over 15, 20 years as we're growing up that you have to untrain. And unfortunately, they're still being trained in most sales schools out there. So that's the top. So how do you do it at your organization? So for people that are coming in on your team and you want to bring them up to speed on you know, I call it the cost of inaction, you know, the terrible, no good, very bad thing that happens if people do nothing. Like what, what is the job they're trying to get done and what sucks about it? And how can I visually see that? Because it is a feeling, you know, mm -hmm. like you have to be able to feel what it's like for them to do the work. And so I go through this thing called an infomercial exercise with SDRs that I talk to. Like, tell me the black and white version of the infomercial. And here's the rules. I need to be able to see it like visually in my head. It needs to be specific and it needs to sound like something somebody would actually say. And I'd say, I don't know, nine times out of 10, through no fault of the SDR, they, they struggle with it. They don't really know, they're unsure, they can't really see it crispy. So what's your process for bringing your reps up to speed on what the world is like and, and why it sucks so bad? Yeah, so let's get off of the, the Carta example. And my current company is a company called PAVE. And so whenever a company needs to go through some sort of compensation review, Normally what they have to do is they need to plan bonuses, they need to plan salaries, they need to plan uh, equity. And all of these things live in completely different places. And so what ends up happening is they have to pull 3,000 different reports, match up the different reports, and basically spend all-nighters in Excel spreadsheets, when in reality, 
they're not even uh, they're not even finance people they're hr people who typically don't have that level of experience and so normally people would focus their trainings on well pave integrates all of these systems so you never have to make a sheet again when in reality the what the first one of the first trainings we ran for the broader team it was literally titled titled why merit cycles suck right and what we did it was a 1 hour training 45 minutes were spent in a customer's obviously anonymized template example, no private data or anything, but in an, ex in an example merit sheet. And we made them literally walk through a comp cycle and pull all of the reports in and go through the pain of doing recommendations for bonuses and then passing it to the managers and duplicating the spreadsheet again. And then at the end, with the remaining 15 minutes, we just said, hey, based off of all the problems you all just went through, Here's how that world changes when you get into the product. And we went through a very, very short demo and walked through the worst problems of the cycle that we just walked through. But people need to dig through the junk before you get into the product. And when we actually went through the product at the end, people were like, oh my God, I can't believe I just spent 45 minutes doing that nonsense. And that's what builds that level of empathy with your customers. So smart. It's almost like you're making people experience the before version. Like, cause, cause sales, it's what you're doing there really smart is it's the contrast, right? You, you show someone that has the six pack abs, it's impressive, but it blows you away when you see him or her 80 pounds heavier and it's the side by side thing. So oftentimes we talk about the after to your point, but we're not seeing the contrast. And so you're actually letting them experience the contrast. Wouldn't that also make them so much more confident because they, they can actually feel, and I think it is a feeling. Like you feel the suck, right? Is that kind of, it's visceral at that point, I would think. The other, so you can totally feel the suck for sure. But then what you can also start to see is you can, because you know their process so, so well, because you understand all of the problems associated with the process. If you hear one step within the process, you start to know what the second and third things that happen when a problem like that comes up versus if you only know your product, you only know a variety of situations where you can be helpful. You only know how to feature pitch. But I know if someone is on this system and this system, that means they're pulling these types of reports. And I remember when I did that, and after I had to pull those reports, it was a complete nightmare to go through steps two, three, and four. And that's literally how I run my discovery, is I'm just sort of metal detecting and trying to find like my first in, my first place to dig, and because I know the process so freaking well, the moment I find that first hint of a painful process, I just know to keep going deeper because I've gone through that exercise myself. Yeah, so you're, you're actually, you have a hypothesis in terms of when you are doing outreach or when you're making a cold call, what the terrible, no good, very bad thing happens if they just do nothing, like the cost of inaction, like what does it cost them to do nothing? And then you're taking these problem-based visuals that you're actually experiencing and then you're somehow turning that into a script let's just keep it simple you know on the cold call because i know you've spent a lot of your career um getting good at one thing and i love what you said earlier is rather than being a jack of all trades and bouncing around from video to emails to linkedin and i'm, I'm so guilty of this because i'm one of these people that puts out a bunch of stuff you know, so I'm guilty of let it, distracting people in all, in all candor, but I think really it takes a tremendous amount of discipline, which you have, and maybe it's because of your wrestling background to be able to say, hey, you know what, there's a lot of distractions out there. We got everyone talking about a bunch of stuff and it's fun to read it. It's satisfying, it scratches an itch, but I'm gonna now apply what I know about the audience 
They're before version of the infomercial, and I'm gonna hone in and get really good on the phone. So let's actually talk about that, and let's be a little intentional. Let's zoom in for a second. Let's forget about cold emails. Let's forget about LinkedIn. Let's forget about social. Let's forget about video and holograms or whatever the next thing is that someone's gonna come out with next week or whatever the hell I'm gonna write about. And let's actually hone in on how you then take that knowledge of the suck and how you then start to craft that into a script. And maybe you don't call it a script. I know you're not big on that term. Um, what to say and more importantly, even how to say it. I know you talk a lot about delivery, but take us through your process there for, for your current company page. Okay. So let's start with the opener and then we can go into what I call the problem prop, not the value prop, right? And so my opener, the goal of my opener is to figure out where the person's head at. And it's also to make it seem like it's not a cold call, right? And so my goal is not to say like, hey, did I catch you at a bad time? Or how's your day going? All of those little things that perk up the telemarketer spicy, spidey senses, they perk up, I mean, in your words, they, they, they smell like co commission breath, right? Those are the things that I'm gonna try to cut out of my opener. And so what I usually like to lead with is if I was calling up a friend or if I was calling someone in the same network, or when in my insurance days, we would call referrals really often, is I would say like, hey, Matt, Josh told me to give you a ring. It's a Armand at blank. Have you heard her name tossed around? Right? All I'm gonna do is I'm gonna recreate that, but for whatever industry or whatever investor my prospect has. And so let's say I'm calling someone in the fintech space, right? They're a fintech company in Chicago. I've probably worked with one or two fintech companies. Maybe I've even worked with a fintech company in Chicago. And so I'm gonna say, Josh, hey, we, we work with a couple other fintech companies in Chicago. It's our money to pay. Have you heard our name tossed around? And then one of two things will happen. So first of all, the reason I introduced myself afterwards is the moment you hear we work with a couple of fintech companies in Chicago, or if I said, hey, we work with a couple of your other, um, with Sequoia's portfolio companies. I know you're a Sequoia company. You sit up and you're like, okay, this person's in my space. And the reason I ask you have heard a name tossed around is because I'm not trying to sell you if you already know what we do. I have no desire to sell you if you know what we do. If you say like, oh yeah, I've heard your name tossed around. I'm gonna say, well, Josh, that means I probably screwed something up because normally, We'd be working with someone at your stage by now. And so guess what you hear, right? What do we do wrong? And then if they say no, that's where, when I'm going to start to bring them into the before state of the infomercial. And I'm happy to talk through that too. So before we get there, there's a couple things that you did there that were very subtle that I picked up on. Um, and I'm knowing you how I know you from the research that I've done on you. It's an, everything you're doing is intentional. Um, I equate you to a stand-up comedian. Let me explain to you why I'm saying that. Not that you have a great sense of humor. You probably do, but if you watch a stand-up comedian, everything is deliberate. Like I was watching Seinfeld last night and sure he's funny, but I was really paying attention the third time I watched it to how he's delivering the message. And nothing is to chance. The pauses, the, where he's walking, the tonality, the, the small little stutter that you just did, I'm assuming, because you did it twice, I'm assuming that's even intentional. And I wanna just unpack that a little bit. Maybe it was intentional. Was that intentional first off or did I? 100%. Okay, so, so what, was go what, was, what, was the, what was the psychology behind that? A lot of people, when they pick up the phone, they go, hey, Josh, I know I caught you at a horrible time, but can I get 30 seconds to tell you why I'm calling and then you can tell me if this is a fit or not? This is our month from PAVE. And it's like, all right, here we go. And so what I wanna do is when I pick up the phone, I'm leaning back in the chair. And I have not rehearsed this thing at all. 
I've actually rehearsed it a lot, but I want it to feel like a little bit of like a nudge to the prospect. I don't want it to feel like I'm coming in hot. And that's why I start, you know, hey, uh, Josh, we, we work with a couple other Sequoia portfolio companies, casual, right? It's Armand at Pave. Have you heard her name tossed around? And there's a little bit of like a shrug there where I'm just like, hey, like it's a little bit of something like, you've probably heard of us before, right? Heard her name tossed around? It's no push. There's no intense sales motion here. It's just me trying to understand where they're at so I know that I don't have to pitch if they already know what we do. And I'm basically telling them with my tone, I'm in your network and you should probably know who we are. So something else I noticed about that too is the, the, the delivery really calm, like confident, but not hypey. In fact, this whole interview, you've been like that as well. Um, not amped up, which is the opposite of what I typically hear when I listen to cold calls. Even though people aren't like that in their normal life, they get on the calls and they're, they're kind of amped up. Um, talk to me a little bit about tone as well. I'm assuming that's intentional too. Way too many people think that getting excited or all of these other things, showing enthusiasm and all. It's important to have energy and everything like that. But for me, what I find is that people do one of two things. They either go over-enthusiastic or over-formal. When in reality, the best is casual and comfortable. So over-enthusiastic sounds that pre like that previous example I gave you. A lot of people also go over-formal where they're meeting with the CFO of Airbnb and they come in super uptight and they're like, Sir, the purpose of this call today is to figure out if we're a fit for Airbnb. And what you realize, what you don't realize is what I learned when I was working in corporate strategy is I was really uptight presenting to the CFO, 200,000 employee company, super uptight. And another exec came in right before Easter and he said, hey, Doug, happy Easter. And he chucked a chocolate egg at the guy and walked out the room and the exec caught it and he was like, what the hell? And everyone laughed. And that's how these execs are talking to each other. Because they're people. The you, they're just people. They've cleaned up a diaper if they have kids. So you can only take them so seriously. And my favorite thing to do is to, if I find, the, the more high powered an exec I get in the room with, the more crap I like to give him. If they're being really silent, I'll call them out and I'll say like, Josh, you're really ruining my talk to listen ratio on Gong right now. Could you, could you give me a little bit more here? And they'll be like, okay, like this guy gets it. I love that self-deprecating. Uh, that humor. The other thing too that I noticed about what you were talking about is, you know, I refer to this as like you're coming across like an equal. And I think so many times in sales, we're like in this like down position, begging for our parents' affection. I'm not saying you have to be in an up position, but this idea of just being an equal and thinking that you actually have something that might be able to help this prospect live a happier life in some way and not being in this groveling perspective, right? That's the other thing I heard in the tonality, which is you're not coming across as arrogant. You're not coming across as above them, as better than them, but just equal on this idea of saying, hey, we're kind of in the same space. Um, some other ideas you might have is, hey, Josh, I'm familiar with you, you know, on LinkedIn. Um, I'm kind of a big deal on LinkedIn too. Have you heard of me? Like I, I, I'm familiar with you through Armand. I know you had him on your podcast. I'm familiar with you some, with some work that I did at another company. You know, these, these ideas that make you socially connected to the person in a casual tone starts you off on an equal stature. And that's what I'm hearing in your approach, Armand, so far, which is casual, equal, non-assumptive, matter of fact, talking to someone over coffee and casual. Okay, so that goes in one of two ways. The yes, I've heard of you and we've kind of gone down that path. 
But let's go down the other path, which is, uh, no, I never, never heard of you guys before. So the first thing that I typically like to do at this point is they haven't heard of me. So for all, all intents and purposes, we're in the cold call zone, right? It's no longer a warm call, right? When they go down that no path, now what I'm going to roll into is honestly what's a more popular opener out there, which is the permission-based opener. And so I'm going to start the self-deprecating now, and I'm going to act a little bit surprised that they haven't heard of us to continue the ambiance or the aura of, oh, like we're, we're in the same network. I'm a little bit surprised here. And so normally what I'll say if, if they say no, I'll be like, well, I guess we must have screwed up something on our marketing side because normally we'd know someone like you. Like, Josh, my guess is you, you probably hate cold calls, and frankly, I, I don't love reaching out like this all the time. Can I can I give you the, the, the TLDR of what we do, and then you can hang up on me or tell me it's moderately interesting? And that's sure. usually where I roll in right after yeah. that. And, and then so from sure. from there, do you then go into the, 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 the before version of the infomercial? That's right. And so the before version of the infomercial, now you all sort of know what PAVE does. And so again, we help people with these massively painful merit cycles and the spreadsheet process with all these reports. And so my opener is like, hey, Josh, the reason I'm reaching out is we're actually having a, a competition at PAVE. Competition? Yeah, competition. Uh, we're trying to figure out who has the most columns in their merit sheet. The current record is QZ, which is about 445 columns. Think you could win? And that's how we open our cold calls. All right. So, so I have a bunch of perspective on that, but I want to hear the psychology behind that because I think there's a lot going on. This sounds very simple, but there's a lot going on in that one. You start. Yeah. So the, the first thing is, Josh, you call it crispy, right? One, it's, it's almost laughable and entertaining to think that columns could go to QZ. If you think QZ, that means they've, they've walked through the alphabet, 26 letters, that many columns, all the way up to the letter of Q. And you almost always get a good laugh just because it immediately evokes this image in the customer's head of all of those horrible merit sheets that they've gone through. And I'm literally just painting that problem to demonstrate that I know your space. And I'm almost making light of the fact that it's crazy that things are still done this way. And then I can tell them a little bit about what I do after that, but that's all I needed to do. If I get a laugh there, I know I'm in a good place. Yeah, so again, there's a couple things that I love about that. And this, 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 could, this is the first time I'm hearing this, by the way, and I've been hearing opening lines, problem lines, whatever you want to call them for 25 years. That could be my favorite one. And, and let me tell you why um, it is. So in addition to what you mentioned, so many cold calls are so serious. You have now evoked the potential for someone to actually feel something. That also relates to the problem that you solve, right? It's, it's visceral, right? You're going you're gonna to get some kind of a reaction to somebody. And when you make someone feel good, and dare I say smile, use a little humor, and they kind of get it, even if they're not laughing, they're kind of laughing on the inside, um, there's a chemical that's actually released into your bloodstream oxytocin it actually makes you feel good. It's like, it's like a trust chemical. And I don't think there's anything that I have ever experienced that's a stronger lubricant for reducing pressure and forming a bond with someone than that. Um, when you are so serious about your value proposition, you sound like everybody else and you don't have that opportunity. Now, does that hit every single time? Nothing does. 
But I would imagine when you know your audience and they're on QZ, or even if they're not, they're gonna feel something. The other thing I love about it is like a comedian, I was watching Seinfeld last night, which is why this is so entrenched in me. It's like, you think it's going someplace and then it goes in a completely different direction. You know, he's like, make no mistakes about it. Babies are cute, but they are here to take over for us. They're here to replace us. Like you think it's going one way and then he goes another way. So this idea of QZ, it's almost like an exaggeration, which comedians use all the time again. So I love how you're weaving in, I think some of these comedic principles to not only reinforce what sucks, but also make you more relatable. I like the thing that I'm gonna feel as a prospect is you get me. And because it's so specific, the QZ is everything, right? The QZ is insider lingo. Every industry has it. Triathletes have it. I'm sure wrestlers have it. And mm -hmm. by bringing that QZ in, it's, it's, it's something that only an insider would know. I mean, is that, is that how you're thinking about it? Am I overanalyzing yeah. this? <laughs> Every solution, no, no, this is spot on. It's, every solution in the world drives towards we either make you money, we save you money, or we prevent you from getting sued. Notice I did not say we help you save time with your merit cycles, or if we find that merit cycles or compensation reviews take a long time, right? They're, they're a pretty painful process. No, 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 no. Again, this is why you need to understand the problem so deeply is I'm going to go shoot super deep into the process, something that only a peer or only someone like you who's gone through the crap can actually go through. And what I'm also pulling on is all of the heartstrings when you've gone and complained about your spreadsheets to your CFO and they didn't get it. I'm telling you, I get it. I know where you're coming from. And that's the type of, of emotion and reaction that level of comfort that I want to evoke out of somebody is someone who gets my business. Yeah, because to your point, like when people feel like you get them, the next logical place your brain goes is what do you have for me? Right? That's just a natural what you, you see all infomercials start like this. They start with the problem, how you're solving it today and why it sucks. And as soon as you can relate to that, you're like, what do they have? Like you almost you have to close the loop. Um, also, I noticed the delivery again, on that was very um, straight. Like you're, you're playing it kind of straight, right? Like deliver it one more time just so people can hear it. Yeah, I'll say, well, Josh, the, the reason that I'm reaching out is we're actually having a competition. Oh, competition. Well, competition, yeah. what do you mean? It, well, the, the competition is, I thought you might want to participate. We're trying to see who has the, the most columns in their, in, their, in their compensation planning spreadsheet. The current record is actually a, Believe it or not, it's it's QZ, which if you count that out is about 452 columns. Just, you think you could win? <laughs> That's great. Where, where does the call go normally from there? Do, I mean, I would imagine it goes in a couple yeah. different directions. But if you're calling yeah. the right person, do they normally give you like a little chuckle and say, hey, I'm, no, I'm nowhere near QZ? Or like, where does it typically go there? <laughs> They'll usually laugh and they'll be like, I'm, I'm not QZ, but I might be like a BF type of person, right? <laughs> and so you've built this type of rapport Great. with them. And so usually what I'll try to do is I'll go in for like the quick kill there, which sounds a little bit weird, but I'll be like, I mean, I know, I know you probably don't have any time because you're, you're on column BF right now, but I mean, would you be against us seeing how we can help with this type of thing? Like we hear it all the time. If they start to ask what we do, I will tell them what we do, but I will tell them what we do in approximately one sentence and no more. And so some people say like, never, ever, ever tell them exactly what you do. I actually think it's okay. Like some people aren't gonna jump on a call if they don't know 
what you do at all, but you should be able to describe that in one sentence, period. That's a great place to end this interview because um, that's another area that I think is really hard for people, which is to explain what they do in a sentence. And there are situations where you need to be able to do that. There's also situations where you don't have to do that. You can maybe ask a couple of questions and contextualize it. But let's hear your approach for explaining what you do in one sentence. This is a crucial skill because I think people take explanation for granted. We've never been taught how to do it. It's something we have to do all the time. And because we've taken it for granted, we don't really see it as a skill that we can improve and master. And when you are confusing, you lose people. It's I can't get it and I'm just going to not pay attention. So knowing you how I know you, you've probably spent a bunch of time because again, you're the kind of guy, as we started off at the beginning of this interview, you're very deliberate about everything. Your delivery, your words, there's no fat. I'm sure you've trimmed this up. Is there a structure you follow? You know, maybe we can hear what it sounds like and then you can help us deconstruct it so that people can maybe apply it to their business. So, uh, hey, yeah, so Armando, what do you guys do? Yeah, and so again, I've already teed up the problem. And so Josh knows the context of the QZ competition. And so all I'm gonna do is take the one thing that describes what I do and tie it back to the problem. So I'm gonna say, Josh, well, here's what we do is you got those crazy reports in your HRAS and your cap table and you're going all the way to column QZ. And what we do is we tie those two things together. So maybe you might lose that competition next time and you never have to build a merit spreadsheet again. And that's it. We talk to your three systems, your HRIS, your ATS, and your cap table. So you never have to make one of those spreadsheets again and you might just lose that competition. Okay, that's so all. I, I heard a couple things here. And I'm gonna I'm gonna start this one. So, what you do is always the opposite of the before. Like, don't overcomplicate it. Uh, you have a lot of acne. Uh, we're gonna help you get clear skin. Like, I think people overcomplicate this. The other thing that I noticed is language that I love and use all the time, which is so that you can. That's gonna force you. And I want you to talk a little bit about this, Armand, because I'm, again, I'm assuming all this is very intentional. That's gonna force you into thinking, why that does this matter? That language, so that you can, is going to force you into thinking, what does this allow someone to do now that they can't do without you? Is that the intent behind that language, so that you can? Because you could have stopped before that. You didn't. Correct. So I could have just said, well, we integrate your HRIS and your ATS and your cap table and allow you to filter by manager and run promotion processes and all that stuff. But none of that stuff matters. The one thing that matters is the most important thing that's causing that problem. The root cause of that problem that everybody knows is because you have data in different systems. And so all I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, here's this quick panacea to that problem. And that is exactly why you will never have to experience that problem again. And that's it. Nothing more. And do you stop there or do you then end it saying, you know, does that sound like something you'd want to, you know, look at it? Would you be opposed to learning more? Do you just stop it there and let them lean forward? Or how do you after you deliver that, what do you normally do? Do you have like some kind of a transition phrase? Yeah. And so I'll say, so I know that, that there's probably a little bit more than meets the eye there. And I also understand I'm calling you completely out of the blue here. So would it be the worst idea for me to maybe even show you what this thing looked like over a call next week? Right. Okay. And again, it's sort of like, eh, like sound interesting. It's almost like in a sense, like you don't care either way. Right, like that's kind of the vibe of it. It's almost like it's okay either way. The other thing you did really well there, I and mean, Voss calls this um, an accusation audit. You're, you're labeling 
the negative emotion someone's thinking proactively. So I know I'm calling it the worst time. I know you got a bunch of things on your plate. When you label the negatives, you diffuse the negatives, you also make people feel like you get them. And then you kind of use the, the classic Voss, you know, would it be a terrible idea thing? Um, I guess the thinking there is that it's it's a little bit less pressury to say, well, it's not, not a big deal versus do you want to meet? Is that kind of the, the psychology there that you're using as well? It's all part of, that's why the opener is structured that way. That's why the value or the problem prop is structured that way. My whole thing is, is the, the tone in general is I'm not thirsty and trying to jump out of my seat and try to take a meeting with you. I'm just trying to understand like, hey, if you're like everyone else, like you sort of want to see what's out there. I'm not attached to them or screaming or begging for them to give me a yes at that point. For me, they're just falling right into the solution themselves. Armand, this has been one of my most enjoyable interviews. I really have learned a lot from you. You're a super interesting person. If people want to learn more about you and what you're up to, is LinkedIn the best place to connect with you? Yeah, I post a lot of this stuff on LinkedIn. I try to post not crappy content, and I also tend to be somewhat I would say I'm disarmingly blunt. I'm very direct. And so if you want some of the no-nonsense stuff on LinkedIn, you can find me up there. And then, of course, we have a podcast that Josh has been on multiple times called 30 Minutes to President's Club. And you should definitely check out his episodes because they were some of my favorites. So this podcast that you have, I want you to talk a lot. We have a couple minutes left. It's very different. Um, you decided to start a podcast. And I would imagine you thought to yourself, gee, the world needs one more podcast. There's not enough sales podcasts. <laughs> what was it that you were seeing that you thought you could do differently out there in the world of sales podcasts? Because I thought your yours was very different when I got it. I've been on a bunch of podcasts. Just tell everyone a little bit about what's different about what you guys are doing. In the, in the spirit of problem problems, don't get me wrong. I, I love the Joe Rogan podcast. But I love the Joe Rogan podcast because I can listen to a guy talk about chimps and then MMA and relax with a beer on my couch and have a great time. When I'm trying to learn about sales tactics, I cannot sit through a two-hour interview to get one tactic. It's an episode on cold calling, and after two hours, I just learned how to handle the not interested a little bit. There's no juice for the squeeze. You like squeeze this. You ever see those like massive oranges that look really good, and then you squeeze them, and it's like, geez, this thing is made of like paper mache or something. There's like no juice in this. What we did is we basically turned that podcast into a kumquat. And so 30 minutes to President's Club, you squeeze the kumquat and you get a full glass of orange juice. It doesn't actually work that way, but you guys get the point. And the whole idea is that every episode, while it's recorded for 45, it's edited down to 30 so that you only get the juice and it's 100% focused only on actionable sales tactics. There are things about mindset, life stories, all these other things that are discussed elsewhere outside of 30 minutes to 30 minutes to president's club and that's why no one really knows our story per se but if you only want the juice for your squeeze and only want the tactics that's what we do even the way armand explains his podcast is riveting storytelling and explaining is an art and i know no better way to learn how to get better at it than by following a guy like armand armand thank you so much for being so generous with your time this was so enjoyable you're the man josh this is great <laughs>